Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting July 1st, 2016, our coverage of the new WPJ summer issue on renegade cities continues with London-based author Owen Hatherley. His critique of revived plans for better connecting major and minor urban centers in the north of Great Britain is headlined The Feebleness of the Northern Powerhouse, and Brexit raises even more questions about the plan's prospects. We'll also point out other top features in the new summer issue. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports News Service. So, Britain is out of the EU, at least that's the way it looks for now, and while disappointed with the outcome, President Obama is putting the best spin he can on the momentous news. He spoke with National Public Radio. The best way to think about this is a pause button has been pressed on the project of full European integration. Uh, I would not overstate it. Uh, There's been a little bit of hysteria post-Brexit vote, as if Somehow NATO's gone and the transatlantic alliance is dissolving and uh, every country's rushing uh, off to its own corner. That's not what's happening. The president adds it's a good time for the EU to take stock of how it works and try and maintain unity all while respecting each individual nation's sovereignty, admittedly a tough needle to thread. I think this will be a moment in which all of Europe says, all right, let's take a breath and let's figure out How do we maintain some of our national identities? How do we preserve the benefits of integration? And how do we deal with some of the frustrations that our own voters are feeling? And speaking of frustrated voters, there are more than a few on this side of the pond, of course. And there are new questions about what, if anything, the Brexit vote says about Donald Trump's campaign, which, like Brexit, is based in no small part on appealing to economic insecurity and concerns about immigrants. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. There's going to be an identification of creating wealth that has nothing whatsoever to do with the most successful city, the most... uh, incredibly powerful city-state in the world. The Northern Powerhouse is, it kind of sums up the the general Tory government strategy of just saying anything to your face and then doing something completely different while you're not looking. Not genuine, it's just, it's just buzzwords and jingoism. Two sharply contrasting views of a controversial plan for better integrating, economically developing, and politically empowering the area of big and small cities in Northern Great Britain. First from Lord Digby Jones, former UK Minister of State for Trade and Investment, then from a dubious resident of Sheffield, one time major steel town in that area, now dubbed the Northern Powerhouse. Advocates talked about better transportation, communication, productivity, and regional coordination. Skeptics saw inherent incompatibility among the included cities, new layers of bureaucracy, less real grassroots control, and diminishing national benefits from the National Health Service in particular. And the UK's vote to leave the EU left new questions about the national government's means and will to provide promised increases in regional control and budgetary support. 
The Feebleness of the Northern Powerhouses, a featured article in the summer 2016 Renegade Cities issue of World Policy Journal. It was written by Owen Hatherley, London-based author of several books, including The Ministry of Nostalgia from Verso Publishers this year. We talked about it recently for this podcast. Owen Hatherley, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you. What are the notable major and minor cities in this nascent northern powerhouse? Uh, what are the major cities? Um, Manchester, overwhelmingly. Um, Sheffield, Leeds, Liverpool, Hull, Bradford, Newcastle upon Tyne are the major cities. And in general, how does that northern area of Great Britain compare with the southern and metropolitan London in particular, in terms of population, wealth, poverty, income equality? In terms of population, if you bunch the whole thing together, it has about the same population as London, which is well, still a greater London, which is probably about uh, hovering around about 14 million. But there's, it's more sort of a series of quite large industrial conurbations that sort of spread out across the 19th century. So there's Liverpool, has probably in its conurbation nearly a million, Manchester about two and a half million, um, Newcastle just under a million, Leeds and Bradford together, which kind of fade into each other, it's about a million and a half. So there's these very large conurbations. But the actual independent cities tend to be a lot smaller. So Manchester's close to about 400,000 officially, but actually it's the center of a city of two and a half million. And most of them were industrial cities in terms of, you know, very, very straightforward sort of industrial production. In many ways, they were like the industrial cities, the, the first and quite definitive industrial cities. And um, that's had a, a major effect on, on their later development and that they usually had to then sort of, you know, like much like the Rust Belt in the US, they've had to uh, they've had large problems of unemployment and um, later, you know, very insecure and casual work. And they don't have, London has, you know, a a boom that's largely based on finance and property and that's that's never really emerged in the North of England in the same way. It's ironic that Manchester was actually the world's first industrial metropolis. What led to its yeah, rise absolutely. and then decline? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, it sort of begins as a textile manufacturing town, and everyone from sort of Marx onwards takes Manchester as the model as like the kind of, the kind of ideal capitalist city. And... Uh, it's probably one of the first of these cities to decline industrially. Like some of them, like Sheffield, for instance, which is based around the steel industry, still actually, in some ways, is an industrial city of sort in that it's still producing a lot of steel. But the textile industry in Manchester collapsed as long ago as the 1970s. Whereas everywhere else, it was mostly a kind of product of the Thatcher governments of the 1980s and uh, later the the Labour governments of the 90s and 2000s that really kind of put the seal on their deindustrialization. The Northern Powerhouse is not the first vision of a regional rival to London. Tell us about the museum called Urbis and its Super City exhibit circa 2002. So um, Urbis was set up, I think Manchester was just the first of these cities to really go into the post-industrial urbanism and going into sort of art, property, media, 
and so forth. And around the time this happened, um, probably about 15 years ago now, um, we opened this little museum of the city called Urbis. And the, um, one of the first exhibits was this thing called Super City by the London architect Will Alsop, which sort of imagined turning the whole north into a sort of continuous city, which was called in the exhibition Super City. And this is more or less what the northern powerhouse idea is. And most of it was sort of focused on transport infrastructure. So trying to kind of create a transport network that would manage the north kind of collectively as, a, as one large metropolis, which again is one of the major sort of ideas of the, of the current proposal. Alsop did build a bit of his plan. Where and what happened? <laughs> well, sort of. Um, there was, uh, Alsop had several plans for um, sort of, some, some quite small uh, northern cities, like Barnsley, he did a town plan, and another one for a much larger city in Bradford. And the idea of these was to kind of make them kind of more kind of leisure cities and kind of bring more water into them and have sort of iconic architecture, as it, was, as it gets called. And um, it didn't have much of an effect, to be fair. Um, you know, there wasn't really, you know, tourists did not flock to Bradford or Barnsley. Um, it had no significant effect on the economies of those cities. But the interesting thing about his proposal was never the architecture, but the infrastructure, the idea that, that, that the problem with the north is an infrastructural one. And on that, I think there's some, some truth, although not, I, I think the, the interpretation of that was often mistaken. When, how, and by whom was the idea revived as the northern powerhouse? Um, the idea actually comes from the current conservative government, um, which in many ways would seem slightly puzzling insofar as they, the conservative party has very, very little, if any, um, electoral base left in the north of England. Historically, they have done. Um, but for the last... Um, you know, 20 years, uh, they've declined in the north to the point of being barely existent there. Um, but the, um, the I, I think it was, you know, a way of sort of making it look like the country is being rebalanced, I guess. Um, and it also kind of, I, I think, had the side effect of sort of making alliances between... Um, the conservative central government in Westminster and the, 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 the various Labour-dominated local governments in, in places like Manchester, Liverpool, and Leeds, and so forth. Let's um, look at some of the projects meant to create the powerhouse, starting with new and improved transportation to tie urban areas together. Give us an example or two on how they compare with links between the towns, villages, and small cities that became Greater London. Well... The first thing is that Greater London, you know, a little bit the sort of clue as to Greater London is, is, is its name. Um, London is, or kind of everything around London really, is managed as one great metropolis. Although actually, historically, it's a, it's a conglomeration of lots of different small towns and cities. But pretty much since the late 19th century, um, it's been accepted that that's London, that, that places as far apart as Croydon and Watford, which are probably about 20 or 30 miles apart, are London. Um, whereas um, the North, 
the cities of the north for a long time have been sort of managed as, as kind of quite, quite independent of each other. So to use a really, really obvious example that people always use, um, Manchester and Salford. So if you, if you walk um, about five minutes from the centre of Manchester across the River Irwell, you, are, you, become, you, you walk into Salford. And you're no longer in the city of Manchester, you're in the city of Salford. And there's a different local government, a different rules, different everything. And, 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 and of course, it's, even, it's not even the suburb of Manchester, it's the centre of Manchester, so it's quite strange. And there's something quite, it's quite similar in, between Newcastle and Gateshead. Similarly, you, know, you, you cross a river and suddenly you're in a different city, which in London would be absurd. Um, but the crucial thing, really, is that nowhere in the north, apart from Manchester to a degree, has an integrated transport network. So um, Newcastle sort of did in that they actually built a, an underground metro. They built a subway in the 1970s. Apart from that, there are no subways in the north of England. There's a kind of a small underground loop and it's not quite the same thing. Um, and um, so, for instance, let's say you're getting a bus in Manchester. Um, you, you can't use this, uh, different companies will sell you a different travel card your bus there's no there's, in London everything is on the oyster card everything is on a single on, on a single fare which would get, which would get around the, the whole thing um, but the kind of fragmentation of transport in the north is quite extreme but the idea behind the northern powerhouse rather than kind of taking these conurbations and, and running them in the way that London's transport is run is to interconnect them so the idea of rather than kind of like taking like Greater Manchester or Merseyside or Bradford conurbation and plowing loads of money into improving the public transport links within each of those conurbations. What's actually happening is all the money is being plowed into improving between them. So the idea is that if you do this, then they can, in the phrase that's often used, um, you know, uh, punch above their weight. That, that Manchester on its own, if it's two and a half million people, can't compete with London if it's eight and a half. Um, but if you bundle all the north together, then, then, they, then they can form an economic entity that will do that. And that's a strange way of looking at, at, at urban economics, I think, but that's, that's the idea. To what degree do you see better transportation within the area and between it and Greater London actually bringing in new industry, commerce, tourism, other entrepreneurship, and, of course, employment? I think that's unlikely. I think, I, I think what's most likely, and I think what's really, um, what's really going on with this is about um, taking... Take, treating Manchester as a possible centre, um, so that so, so that you would have um, people from the north would um, commute to the centre of Manchester in a way that people commute to the centre of London. In a, in a, so in a way, the uh, the northern powerhouse, in many ways, I think, is a Manchester powerhouse, um, as Manchester has. Manchester has media, it has the BBC partly there and so forth. You know, it has property development and finance and it has tourism and it has a lot of, it has a lot of students and a lot of young, vaguely artistic folk. Um, so I think that, that, that in many ways this, this is the nearest equivalent in the north to um, London's economy. 
beyond transportation, there was also investment in cultural facilities in a number of these places to, to lure more affluent Britons to the area. More controversial is the creation of new regional authorities that seem likely to take power from old local governments, as you've described them. Talk about the arguments for and against that. Um, I know there are, there are quite a lot of people that oppose these because they're... Um, I think that I considered to just create an extra layer of bureaucracy. And they also don't have a great deal of power. And I think that's a really, really, really crucial thing. I think what, you know, that, that even London Mayor has fairly little actual real power. Um, most, and most of these mayors aren't going to have tax raising powers. Um, they're not going to be able to do things like, like that the, the local authorities used to do, like build housing, for instance. Um, so they have a sort of sort of a process of delegation, I think, as, as, as to a large degree, what will happen. So the Greater Manchester Authority that's being created, the sort of Greater Manchester Mayor, while I think this is a very good idea, actually, I think Greater Manchester should have a combined authority and should have a mayor. But... Um, of course, they have no financial power. They will control, for instance, the Greater Manchester part of the National Health Service. Um, but they will not really have much control over, over the grant that they get. So what will essentially happen is that they, they will be the people that administer the cuts that will be decided upon by central government. And uh, going that, back that, that's why a lot of people in the north are quite suspicious about, about this. This is a policy. Well, going back to what you said earlier, you see new powers but no additional resources, especially as the local oh, yeah. economy and tax base decline. But you call that a potential win-win for the conservative national government and the traditionally labor-oriented local councils. Explain that win-win situation. Well, could, could give you an example. A few years ago, um, the head of, the, uh, of, of Manchester City Council, so just the city of Manchester, um, was um, set that they set a very a very harsh budget with a lot of cuts, and the explanation was well, you know, with the with, with the cuts insisted upon by central government, you know, unfortunately we have to implement these austerity policies, and um, some people at, 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 at a local campaigning magazine like the Manchester Mule and the Salford Star did a bit of digging and found out that almost every single cut had already been decided upon by the city council before the. Um, before the government had, 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 had mandated that they, that they cut. So although their budgets are very, very straightened by central government, that's certainly true. And I think it chimes in with a lot of the kind of quite right-wing Labour councils in the north sort of pre-existing instinct towards cutting public services and privatisation, which has been happening for a long time. Um, so on that level, it enables them to, um, to sort of justify what they're doing. It's kind of like, it's not our fault, it's the government. Um, and so, so there's that on the one hand. And also the, the, the central government can to a degree, um, you know, sort of make, can, can, can kind of make the point that, 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 that they are doing something for the North, um, which I, I don't think, I think it would take a very, very long way for them to get that to the point where they can actually get elected in cities in the North. I think that's, that's not going to happen again for a very, very, very long time. But it, it, it enables them to present themselves as rebalancing the economy and decentralizing and all of those sorts of good things. Talk more about the special concern over regional administration of medical care, historically run by the national health with costs spread nationwide. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a... Um, Britain has, um, as, as, as people probably know, 
has a very socialized healthcare system and has done since the 1940s and that's been, uh, I think, largely very successful. Um, but one of the things that came with that is that the, um, the, the, the healthcare system has, has, was, was run as one national system. I mean, actually, there's, it's been devolved in Scotland, for instance, but there's, you know, mostly it's, it's, it's a unified thing. And that's increasingly being dismantled. The um, Health and Social Care Bill um, about five years ago watered this down significantly and brought in a lot of private providers. So there's already a kind of watering down of the, um, of the NHS as a, as a publicly accountable body. And I think a lot of, uh, a, 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 a lot of campaigners on, on, on healthcare in, in Britain are very worried that the, that the delegation of healthcare to the Greater Manchester Authority will, will, will encourage that, 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 you know, that they will be more likely to, um, to sort of sell off parts of the, of the health service um, in a situation in which they have you know, no resources to actually um, you know, look after the enormous um, responsibilities they've been given. So that poorer regions will start getting poorer health care instead of the same level of health care that everybody yeah, in the nation enjoys. Absolutely. And, I, and I think one of the crucial things here is the, the NHS is, I mean, the NHS is the biggest employer in the country. And in the north of England, when the, you know, the, what new employment there's been in the last um, 15 years or so, a huge amount of it has been in the public sector. Um, the last Labour government created quite a lot of public sector jobs, um, and the, a lot of them are concentrated in the north. And the, the, the you know, the, the, if there if there has to, you know, if there will be cuts, which there almost certainly will be, um, after the after the health health service in the north is taken over by northern councils, it will have drastic effects there. More more so, I would suspect, than it will in the south, where there are more where there's more diverse forms of employment. So if, if I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying is that this is, is less about reviving a whole region than a, a super makeover for mainly Manchester. Uh, it seems to be. I mean, one of the things that's, that makes the Northern Powerhouse quite difficult to, to talk about is that so many proposals are very, very vague. Like very little is actually happening. Quite a lot of it is the sort of rebranding of projects that are already going on, for instance. So um, insofar as one can sort of discover exactly what, if there even is anything being proposed here. Um, that seems to be what it is. Investment seems to be very, very concentrated on Manchester. And so turning Manchester into a, into a kind of a housing and employment hub for the, for the rest of the, of the area, which um, given the scale of the area we're talking about, seems unwise, even going beyond the kind of, the sort of ethics of the whole thing. Um, no, people are not going to commute from Newcastle into Manchester. It's a very long way away. Even if, even with you know huge quantities of improved transport links and so forth, it's 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 very unlikely. Um, and I think so much of that seems to be about this, this question of like you know what do we know that works? Well, London works. Um, although you know given the huge cost of living in London, that's a sort of dubious assumption. But nonetheless, London works. So let's. Let's do something like what seems to work in London. And I think that's, that, that explains a lot of what's happening.
A harbinger of what may happen to the region's smaller, poorer cities, you write, is the fate of that urban museum we talked about at the start, Urbis. What happened to it, and what's the larger message? Uh, There's really about two museums that were, that were built in around 2001, one of which is Urbis, which was this center for the city that we've already discussed in the center of Manchester. And the other was uh, something called the National Football Museum, which was opened in Preston, which is an industrial city uh, around the same time as Manchester, somewhat to its north. And this was eventually closed, allegedly because nobody knew what it was for. And the National Football Museum closed and moved into Arbis, and Arbis became the National Football Museum. So the kind of the, the sort of lesser of these two cities, you know, uh, lost its you know, its um, piece of cultural regeneration, its its new tourist attraction, lost it to Manchester within a few years of of opening. And I think that's, you know, the the idea of treating Manchester as a centre around everything, which everything else revolves, that's that's the sort of thing that's going to happen. Other places are going to lose things that they have in order to create things for the kind of metropolis that's being created at the centre. And I think that that, that would be a sign of, of what's to come from lots of the thinking behind the Northern Powerhouse. And what's the potential for resistance from those cities that are bound to lose and uh, opposition to, you know, the larger plan for the Northern Powerhouse generally? Uh, it's, quite, I mean, it's quite hard to tell. I think there's, there's a lot of enthusiasm for this idea in Manchester, unsurprisingly, um, and some of the cities that are closer to Manchester. I think there's a lot less enthusiasm in places like the Northeast because they're not, they're not part of it, basically. Um, and they know it. So I think there's a lot of skepticism there. And those are places that, that you know, the Northeast, for instance, its, its economy is in a much worse state than, than, uh, than that of Greater Manchester. So um, I think they, they're, they're aware that this hasn't really got anything to do with them. And do they have any political sway to, to resist? Not particularly. Um, the, you know, one of the things about Britain is it's a very, very, very centralized country. Um, and, you know, there's devolution in Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, but within England, um, power is extremely centralized. And, you know, a load of Labour councils in the north objecting to something is not necessarily going to, going to make a big difference. Owen Hatherley, thank you. Thank you. London-based Owen Hatherley is the author of several books, most recently Landscapes of Communism from Penguin last year, and more recently The Ministry of Nostalgia from Verso. His essay for the summer 2016 issue of World Policy Journal is headlined The Feebleness of the Northern Powerhouse. In the vote on EU membership that followed our chat, millions across the north of England voted for Brexit, while the largest cities, including Manchester, Liverpool, and Newcastle, leaned against it, dramatizing social and economic divisions within the region, as well as with London. Afterwards, Brexit prompted leaders of the Northern Powerhouse to declare the plan even more important, to bolster and further build trading relationships with soon-to-be former EU partners. But there was concern over how much necessary support would be forthcoming from any new government in London amid such political and economic chaos. Also featured in the new WPJ summer issue, Renegade Cities, you'll find articles about a black market for water in the Indian city of Chennai, 
about public-private collaboration for affordable housing, at least on paper, and about honor killings in Pakistan. And listen next week when our podcast will focus on Brexit and a new Cold War. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, Managing Editor Yaffa Frederick, Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.